thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food reel with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. In episode 140 of The Real Food Reel, we are joined by Marla Cunningham. I first met Marla at the 2017 International Congress on Natural Medicine, where her subject was Paths to Microbiome Disruption and Recovery, Where Do Probiotics Fit In? In today's show, you will learn all about the microbiome, probiotics, prebiotics, and Marla's position on testing prior to the prescription of a gut health protocol. Let's welcome Marla to the show. Hi, Steph. It's great to be here. Thank you. Really good to have you on the show. So before we dive into our topic, tell us a little about yourself and your story and how you got into uh, being a naturopath. Yeah, sure. Um, So I um, probably first got interested in naturopathy when I was a teenager and like I wasn't It wasn't that I was particularly health conscious, but I think it was um, like all 15-year-old girls, I decided that I might want to be a bit skinnier than I was. Um, So, And being a bit of a bookworm at the time, instead of just following the latest magazine trend, what I decided to do was to go to the library and to look up what what would be a good diet to to put myself on. And it was actually really interesting, and I really remember this quite clearly, is that when I went to the library, what I expected to find was books on diet and weight. And what I found was all these amazing books on diet and health and concepts that I'd never even thought about before. And I discovered um, Pritikin's low-fat plant-based diet and him reversing atherosclerosis. Um, And I discovered Leslie Ketton's raw food diet and all of the um, amazing health stories that were coming out of that. So that just really opened up a whole new world as far as the impact of food on health. And then from there, um, I discovered the amazing impact that natural therapies and herbs could have as well. And um, yeah, I guess I I was just hooked on that from then on. Yeah, cool. Well, at least you were able to turn it into a, you know, a positive focus and move away from just trying to be skinny. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And so many people, yeah, get get hooked in this cycle of, mm. of bad habits. And for me, it actually it actually opened up a whole new world. So beautiful. Yeah, excellent. So let's move into um, the discussion around probiotics. So I wanted to actually start the conversation um, on your thoughts of testing. So we're hearing a lot about um, doing certain stool tests or gene tests or whatever that might look like. But I wanted to get your position on um, whether you think it's required before we can prescribe probiotic strains. Yeah, sure. Um, So testing as it relates to the microbiome, there's lots of discussion about this. There's lots of um, lots of companies starting to do more and more of it. There's lots of practitioners starting to do more and more of it. So there's really been an absolute explosion in the testing recently. Um, and there's lots of – it's a big question. Um, so there's kind of lots of different ways that I could tackle this question. Um, but I think 
to start um, from where it's come from is there's been a lot of research projects that have done microbiome testing. So, you know, we've got the American Gut Project and the, the Human Microbiome Project and all of these huge um, population level studies that have done a lot of microbiome analysis. Um, and w there's been some really interesting publications out of that and some really interesting findings. And what they're finding in the research is that there are associations of certain bacteria with good better health outcomes and associations with other bacteria with poorer health outcomes. Um, and there's also um, a lot of correlations that they're getting out of that with individual differences as well. So we're learning that out of that, that there's every person's microbiome is almost unique, as unique as a fingerprint, and that there's lots of different factors that will influence what a person's microbiome is, like their genetic um, structure and what diet they eat and, you know, all of their early life influences, the environment, the levels of contact that they have with others and green space and all of these different factors that come together to influence what, what somebody's microbiome actually looks like. Um, so there's, it's not surprising that there's a lot of interest out of that because there's some really fascinating findings. Um, I think where some of this can get a bit lost in translation though and is when you start to take it back to clinical practice um, because where these associations are being found are on a population level um, and once you take any one individual and you try and um, define what should be their ideal microbiome and exactly which bacteria they should have and at what percentages, um, you start to lose the correlation a bit. Um, yeah, so any one individual um, will be quite different in their microbiome. So that's, I guess that's as far as compositional tests go. It's quite difficult to actually interpret what somebody's ideal composition should be. Um, but where I think a lot of some of these tests are going now and where I think the future of microbiome testing will be is a bit more about the function of the microbiome. So we know that different networks of microbes, one individual may have, you know, A, B, C and D microbes working together and another individual may have um, E, F, G and H microbes working together. But um, those, each community is still producing a same healthy output. So if we can start to get tests that actually measure the output of any one individual's microbiome, um, looking at things like short-chain fatty acids, um, which, you know, some of the basic tests are already doing, looking at neurotransmitter output vitamin synthesis, bile acid metabolism, all those core functions of the microbiome, what we can actually start to assess is whether somebody's microbiome is functioning healthily rather than whether it fits a, a predefined ideal in inverted commas microbiome. Yeah, I love that. I think, you know, obviously science is right there at the moment with being able to advance that testing. So hopefully it's, it's not too far away. But you know, I think what we are seeing at the moment is that it's becoming a little bit reductionistic in its view, you know. So we see, all right, well, low lactobacilli, let's yeah. let's supplement with lactobacilli, but it's obviously a lot more complicated than, than that. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I really like the move towards the, the functional tests more so. Um, and there are, I mean, there's some other tests like um, cybo breath testing, which can be quite useful because it's really a functional um, location-based test as mm. to where where there's quantitative overgrowth of, of the microbiome. So, you know, looking at some of those outputs of the microbiome, so um, breaths, acids, things like that are quite useful. And then the other, out, the key outputs of the microbiome that I think are most relevant in practice are the symptoms 
that it's generating. So if a patient has gut and immune dysfunction, you know their microbiome isn't right, you know, and you know that's that's one of the best ways of picking up microbiome dysfunction is from a patient's presenting symptoms. Yeah, absolutely. And just to take a step back for those, the SIBO or the SIBO that you mentioned is the small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which is diagnosed by a breath test. So yeah. thank you for bringing that one up. So let's talk about um, the strains in particular. Um, yeah. So, you know, obviously most people I think are familiar with the terms lactobacillus and bifidobacteria. Um, these mm. are definitely the most common um, species. So with, you know, with over a 1,000 species contained in our microbiome, what are the benefits of looking at lactobacillus and bifidobacteria, um, especially in cases of dysbiosis? Yeah, sure. Um, and this is another big, big question, and I could definitely go on for about an hour about this one, I think, um, because it's this is the question that really intrigued me when I started digging into this literature a couple of years ago. So it was there's all of this big data coming out of the microbiome and we're seeing huge numbers, like a thousand species of uh, microbes within the microbiome. We're seeing that there's 38 trillion organisms. So, you know, how can a, a couple of species of lactobacilli and bifidobacteria actually make a difference in that, you know, 20 billion um, in this mass of, of 38 trillion. So what that's led people to do um, is to start thinking, okay, well, I need to use really high doses of probiotics and I need to use as many strains as possible. So I need to use lots and lots of different strains of, of lactobacillus and bifidobacteria, um, which you can see why people are, are thinking that um, because it fits into this um, traditional naturopathic idea of, of probiotics receiving the gut. So um, one of the things that we're, we're all taught as naturopaths is a bit of a, a weed and seed protocol for gut healing. So we, uh, for, well, for gut microbiome restoration, so that we go in with antimicrobials and we reduce the pathogen load um, and then we put in these missing uh, beneficial bacteria, namely the idea was lactobacillus and bifidobacteria. So we always thought that with lactobacillus and bifidobacteria, we were replacing a lactobacillus and bifidobacteria deficiency. That was the idea. Um, but just in the last, over the last, you know, five, ten years or so, we've really started to actually understand what does make up the microbiome. And it's really not lactobacillus and bifidobacteria that make up the microbiome. So those two species or those two genera are only just a couple of percent in the microbiome. And when you actually get dysbiosis, what you get is a depletion of all of the, uh, some of the other key um, commensal or native bacterial families. Um, so genera like Roseburia, Blautia, Coprococcus, Ruminococcus, um, species that we don't hear very much about. So it sort of no longer makes sense to give, um, to just try and give lots of lactobacillus and bifidobacteria to try and correct those deficiencies that you're getting in the microbiome. And so that's then led to this kind of explosion in interest in fecal microbial transplantation, where you're saying, okay, well, it's some of these core microbes that are missing. Um, we need to get them from another person's stool and put them back in. Um, and people are sort of calling that the ultimate probiotic because it contains all the different species. 
within the microbiome. Um, and while that's a, that's a completely valid strategy and it's shown, it's shown great results in severe microbiome disruption, um, it's probably it's not something that's really accessible or desirable for the everyday patient with dysbiosis. Um, and it's not, it can be associated with side effects as well. So we really don't yet understand exactly what we're transferring when we're transferring stool. It can be transferring um, disease risk and all sorts of things like that as well. So what we then come back to is, okay, well, what strategies can we use that actually help to regrow the native bacteria there without um, trying to replace them with something? And it's, this is where we come back to Lactobacillus bifidobacteria because it turns out that there's a couple of strains of Lactobacillus bifidobacteria and Saccharomyces that actually stimulate the regrowth of some of these key bacteria that are deficient. So we have uh, Lactobacillus rhamnosus LGG, uh, we have Bifidobacterium lactis BB12, and Saccharomyces cerevisiae boulardii, commonly known as SB. What these strains can do is they can go in and they can actually reset the gut environment and they can uh, break down fibres into compounds which feed the beneficial bacteria and they actually sort of help to um, regrow the core bacteria rather than aiming to go in there and replace it. So it's a really interesting twist on um, what we're actually looking for in a probiotic now that we understand a lot more about how they work. Yeah, you raise a good point and then that goes back to what we were touching on before about not looking to simply add in just one strain or looking at sort of what's low and, and adding in with that reductionistic model. So you've answered the question about the other um, types of strains that I was interested in hearing um, from you about. Um, so what should we do like in terms of should it come from a supplement um, or what are your thoughts on the fermented or cultured foods? Yeah, great question. Um, so I guess there's I would put um, therapeutic probiotics in one bucket and fermented foods in another one. So I might I might just address both of those as separate buckets and I think both both of those buckets are something that we should be drawing our, our clinical tools from. Um, so as far as therapeutic probiotics go, so I mentioned three that are really about microbiome restoration. So when someone has dysbiosis and depletion through antibiotics or stress or poor diet or whatever, you want to look for strains that actually restore the native ecology in the gut rather than trying to go in and replace what was there. Um, but that's not all that therapeutic probiotics do. So a lot of people um, get hung up on the idea of putting the probiotics back in there to colonize and regrow. Um, but a lot of the different therapeutic applications of probiotics are actually um, far beyond that and have a lot of other mechanisms. So we, we look at probiotics um, with specific outcomes in the clinical trials for allergy prevention, um, for reduction of gut pain, for helping with IBS, for stimulating immunity, uh, for assisting with pregnancy outcomes. So sometimes it's we need to get away from the actual microbiome focus of probiotics and think about them more as, as therapeutic agents that interact with the body and help to reset different functions. Um, so that's really about um, using them in a, in a much broader way than just thinking about reseeding the gut. Um, and then if we come over to, and those, sorry, those actions in that bucket are really very strain specific. So that's where you need to look at those letters and numbers after each species. So, you know, LGG, BB12, those things I was talking about before, um, because different strains will have different genetic structures and that will have a completely different clinical outcome. So therapeutic probiotic actions are very strain specific. 
So then when we get to the fermented foods arena, that's very non-strain specific. So all of our things like kefir and sauerkraut and all types of ferments, we don't know what's in those. We don't ca- we don't buy them off the shelf and it has all the strains and species listed on there. So what those fermented foods tend to generate is a is a whole profile of different microorganisms which grow well in in plant or animal substrates. And they can that can also be very beneficial for health but in a different way. So um, there's a lot of people um, going back to, you know, more natural lifestyles and more in tune with, with perhaps what we've had during evolution. And what we had during evolution was a diet that typically contained much higher levels of microbes than it does now. So, you know, our food wasn't coming in sterilised plastic packages from the supermarket. It was coming coming from the earth and from the environment. So it typically had a lot more more microbial contamination in it. Um, fermented foods have been used for a long, long time as a as a um, supporter of health. So our, our gut barrier and our immune system in our gut has actually evolved with high levels of, of um, non-toxic microbes coming through the system. So um, just consuming higher levels of, of beneficial microbes in fermented foods is actually um, a bit of a, a kind of a strengthening and um, beneficial thing for the, for the gut barrier and immunity. So that's sort of a different mechanism of action of those compounds. So, yeah, so obviously just to sort of summarise that point, you, you feel that the supplements are where it's really specific for a condition, whereas the food is, you know, general health and obviously acknowledging the many benefits of looking after the microbiome. Yeah, it's and I mean, so you've got yeah, you've got the specific probiotics for specific conditions. But then, if you're looking at dysbiosis and you're looking to rest, and you're just looking at patients who have suboptimal gut health and you're looking to restore that, you can really pick one thing from each bucket. So you can use the the specific str- probiotics that restore the microbiome to have that um, therapeutic targeted effect. But then you can also um, pick some fermented foods to add in as well. And those two things together can can work in a dual way to um, improve the gut health. Yeah. And obviously offer diversity as well. Yeah. Yeah. Good. So what role does dosage play? How do we work out what we should be having? And I'm sure you've been exposed to it too with the boom and, you know, how vogue gut health is. I think people are kind of maybe going a little bit too far with their intake of probiotics, whether it comes from supplements or food. So, yeah. you know, how do we work out um, the right dose for us and, you know, what role does it play? Yeah, sure. Um, so that's, a, yeah, that's an interesting question. I think that that feeds into this idea of, you know, all of this big data on the microbiome and 38 trillion organisms and all of those big figures that people are thinking, okay, well, in order to influence the microbiome, I need to use really high doses of probiotics. Um, and there's, I spent a bit of time looking into that as well. And when I was looking into the research on that, I found um, quite a few papers that used different doses of probiotics doing dose ranging studies on on what the outcomes were. And what I saw out of that was that when they used um, when they used a certain dose of probiotics and got a certain health outcome, um, when they then tried using 10 times or 100 times that same dosage, they actually got a completely different outcome in the in the experiment and in the clinical studies so one particular one was where they gave a probiotic strain and it had um, some immune regulating effects so it helped to dampen down um, excessive immune activity the sort of action that you'd want in allergy or autoimmunity 
And then they use tenfold the dose, so ten times the dose, um, in those same people, and they actually had an immune-stimulating effect, uh, actually promoting and worsening inflammation, inflammatory markers. So it's like a lot of compounds that have a different effect at a different dose, and particularly with probiotics, you don't just want to be saying more is better. What you want to be looking for is the the researched strain that's been proven to have the actual outcome that you want on the symptom or the condition, and then you want to be using that particular dose as well um, because, yeah, using really high amounts of, of probiotics can actually start to have unexpected effects in, in patients. And then um, fermented foods is really a matter of tolerance and, you know, what your body's actually telling you. So we do know that it's beneficial to have um, more... Um, safe microbes in the diet Um, but you know we may have evolved with that but we've also we've had an absence of that for a long period of time so any one individual's gut may not be particularly well adapted to being able to tolerate that as well so I think um, patients can probably start off you know nice and slowly with these foods and increase them and find out which sort of foods suit them better some may feel better on kefir some may feel better on fermented vegetables and sauerkraut and things like that so it's about finding what your individual gut likes and feels and works for you yeah i agree and what sort of symptoms would you get a patient to pay attention to like is it's you know obviously it's systemic in terms of how influential the gut is but do you have any um advice on that as to how we can apply that trial and error yeah, sure. Um, and I mean, you know, really it starts with the gut. So, mm. you know, you can pay a lot of attention to digestive comfort and whether mm-hmm. there's excessive bloating, um, whether there's um, change in bowel habits and anything, const- both constipation and diarrhea can actually um, indicate that there's some sort of inflammation being caused in the gut and some sort of irritation. In some patients, when they get irritation in the gut, their gut tends to sort of uh, seize up or freeze and slow down and they get constipation, whereas other people will get more of a flushing response when that happens. You mm. know, um, So that can sometimes just be a transient thing as your gut adjusts and it, it, patients shouldn't take, you know, they've, they've tried something new and they've got a bit of diarrhea or constipation. It doesn't mean that that's not going to work for them long term. It might just be they need to introduce that particular um, intervention more slowly slowly um, but also generally it's the next sort of ring out from the gut is the immune system um, so any what happens in the gut will talk to the immune system and, and influence immunity so I think the best sort of systemic symptoms to watch out for that the gut's not happy is anything to do with immunity and inflammation so if somebody's sinusitis is flaring up or if their their eczema is is causing them problems or their joint pains getting worse or anything that's increasing inflammation in the body usually means that the gut's not happy um, and it needs to sort of be calmed down and maybe rested for a little bit yeah, that's great. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. So we talk about prebiotics a lot and obviously, um, you know, I think your, your stance has given me a lot to think about in the way that I excri- uh, sorry, describe things to my, my clients. So that's more food for thought. So thank you. But what about the role of prebiotics? Yeah, sure. Um, so prebiotics and probiotics, you know, their names are very similar and they often go hand in hand. Um, and the prebiotics are the ones that feed the, the beneficial bacteria, um, so just a certain type of fibre. Um, so a lot of the microbiome research and the correlations that they're making with the diversity of the microbiome um, and how we can actually impact the diversity of the microbiome, all of that points to increasing the fibre and the prebiotic content of our diet. So as um, the fibre content in anyone's diet decreases, so does their microbiome diversity go down. 
Um, and there's some, yeah, there's some really disturbing and fascinating research um, on the intergenerational effects of that as well. So, you know, over the past 50 years or so, we've seen increased industrialization of the food supply and increased stripping out of that fiber that's in the diet. And from generation to generation, we actually, as that fiber level decreases, we actually get an exponential decrease in the diversity. So there's a lot of concern and a lot of talk about these um, missing, these microbes that are going missing because we're just simply not feeding them um, in our own lifetimes and from generation to generation. So fiber and prebiotics is is absolutely crucial to maintain microbiome health and it's one of the first things what's well, one of the most important things in the diet that we need to be considering um, but the caveat there is that it's sometimes not the first thing that you should do with a patient's diet um, because what often happens in patients whose gut is quite uh, inflamed and they have a lot of um, digestive symptoms they actually have um, quite a degree of sort of hypersensitivity in the gut and a lack of a high degree of gut discomfort. And these same patients will probably tell you that oh, they don't feel well when they eat a lot of vegetables or they can't tolerate legumes or um, they're the sorts of patients that might end up on a low FODMAP diet because they can't tolerate any degree of bloating. Um, and this sort of prebiotic intolerance picture is really actually a picture of that the gut isn't as healthy as it needs to be. Um, because the gut really should be able to tolerate high amounts of these prebiotic foods. So what we often need to do is we can't just tell this patient to increase their fibre and give them a lot of prebiotic supplements, so they'll, they'll absolutely be in a world of gut pain about it. So what we often need to do first with those patients is reduce the, the gut inflammation and really use some gut healing and um, digestive sort of reset type strategies and get the digestive system functioning well first um, and helping with the microbiome growth through other mechanisms like pro Probiotics, and then start to gradually up the intake of fibres and prebiotics, and you just sort of do that, do that to tolerance. Yeah, great. And what would some examples be of these sorts of foods that you're yeah. looking at? Yeah. So, I mean, the the FODMAP, um, the FODMAP uh, kind of doctrine of things, and I don't know how familiar your listeners would be with the the FODMAP. Have you spoken about the FODMAP? Yeah, um, they should be pretty before? covered. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So they're all of the fermentable um, fibres that are in the diet. Um, and there's a lot of things that fall into that category. But it's generally, it's a lot, it's a lot of fruits and vegetables. Um, it's pretty much all of the, the legumes, a um, few grains. Um, yeah, so it's really all of the, the healthy plant foods that we actually want in somebody's diet because they promote beneficial microbial growth. Um, when we're promoting beneficial microbial growth, we can also be promoting gas production, and that's what starts to cause the problem in these hypersensitive people. So it's about reducing the hypersensitivity and sometimes using some um, neuronal strategies like magnesium and calming down the, the gut nervous system um, before you can start to, to increase a lot of vegetable and plant and fruit intake. Yeah, beautiful. But again, like to tolerance, obviously. So as you mentioned, a lot of these people have gone on low FODMAP diet or they've got, you know, the huge list of food triggers, a lot of them which are, you know, natural and nutrient dense and prebiotics, which feed the beneficial bacteria. So they get stuck in this really small, vicious cycle. So it's great to be able to get them to spread their wings, so to speak, to to be able to introduce these foods which have, you know, a, a... multitude of benefits yeah absolutely and um it is it does worry me about the the low fodmap 
um, popularity at the moment because I, I think it's an amazingly effective intervention for the short term for mm. people with chronic gut conditions like IBS and it, it can be give them amazing relief and it's it's a really good idea to get patients onto this low FODMAP eating plan to help to calm down the gut and give them some relief but it's not a long-term strategy because you're really stripping prebiotics out of the diet and it's um, there's some data people starting to analyze this problem in the research and there's some data emerging that you do get a loss of diversity over time on a low FODMAP diet so the, the really important thing to remember with people on low FODMAP diets is that it's not a long-term strategy and the, the second phase of the low FODMAP diet is to gradually start increasing those FODMAPs. Yeah absolutely and that that is some of the um, the worry that I have as well because, you know, even though when you look at the research from whether it's, you know, Sue Shepherd or Monash, um, they're very clear that it's a treatment protocol but there, there are too many people that do it long term. Yeah, the um, the first stage is the um, is the exciting bit, um, and the second sort of reintroduction phase is sort of the bit that often gets lost in translation yeah. sometimes. So yeah, absolutely fascinating, wonderful. Do you have anything else you wanted to add in terms of like your concerns with where you see some of um, you know any recommendations or anything else that you've been exposed to in the probiotic space? Yeah. Um, oh, look, I think I just, um, I think I just encourage people to um, really look at the science of what they're actually being presented mm. with and you know that's that's absolutely my passion is in life is to to go through and look at the the science in natural health care and and see what's relevant for clinical practice and really try and translate the wisdom of the science down to what that actually means to improve the way that that we're practicing um, so because I think it particularly in the area of the microbiome and probiotics because it's so popular at the moment and there's such a lot of hype around it. Um, with anything that experiences an explosion in popularity, there can be a lot of hype and a lot of myths generated around that. So I think it's about trusting the source of where you're getting your information from um, and really just stopping to, to look at, you know, for example, your probiotic strains and your doses and think about, you know, is this actually proven to help with the, the outcome that I want? Um, that just because something says probiotic doesn't mean that it actually has any benefits. So, you know, not all probiotics are the same and that they all have all have quite different effects. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. It's been mm. fascinating to have this conversation with you today. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and we're really grateful to have had you on the show. Great. Thanks, Steph. It's been great talking to you. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter, The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.